Welcome queen to the body love binge with me Victoria. Although we're all unique, honestly I'm no different to you. I'm just a girl who's been through some hard shit, figured out how to thrive and made it her life's mission to help others to do the same. I've beaten anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder and I'm a domestic abuse survivor. My intention for this podcast is to empower you with weekly episodes on all things food freedom, body love and of course juicy, yummy self-love so you can embody the healthiest and happiest version of you. Enjoy the episode my love. Hello Queens, welcome to another episode. I have an extremely special guest with me today. I have Mark David, who is the founder of the Institute for the Psychology of Eating. And I'm honestly so honored that he said yes to coming on the podcast to share his knowledge and his wisdom. Some of the key topics that Mark talks about during this conversation are what is eating psychology and also what are the key principles of eating psychology. He shares the difference in his professional opinion between binge eating and emotional eating and how eating psychology looks at both of these independently. We talk about toxic dietary beliefs, weight set point theory, how mind, body and nutrition all all come together to create holistic health and also how women can step into their queenhood and leave behind their princesshood and really step into true self-love and food freedom. This conversation was absolutely incredible. We talk a lot in depth as well, while Mark does with his wisdom of pleasure, our distorted relationship to pleasure if we have food issues, and honestly so much more. So I'm so happy that you're here. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to screenshot this episode and share on your stories so we can share you with our audience. Sending so much love and enjoy the episode. Okay, welcome Mark to the podcast. How are you today? Victoria, I'm doing great. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. No, it's an absolute pleasure and an honor. I'm very excited for this conversation. Okay, so 10 quick fire questions to start with. Are you ready? Please, let's go. Okay, number one, your favorite food? Favorite food would probably be avocados. Nice. Number two, early bird or night owl? Oh, I would say night owl. Number three, if you were homeless and you had a sign, what would you write on your sign? It would say, I'm doing okay. Mm, Love that. Number four, what's the most ridiculous diet either you have followed yourself or that of what your clients have followed? Well, way back when there was something called the cabbage soup diet that so many people were doing to lose weight. And I always disliked cabbage soup. So I just couldn't imagine people being on a diet of cabbage soup. I've done that one. And to this day, Mark, I I cannot eat vegetable soup. I'm literally traumatized. I understand. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, number five. If you could reincarnate as an animal, what would it be and why? Oh, it would definitely be a male lion. I I just love getting on YouTube and watching videos of male lions be an apex predator, but Mm -hmm. also be very playful and very communal. And they can be truly a predator in one moment and just like a little cat in another moment. 
Is I love that. Is that would you say that was true for who you are now today? In many ways, yes. <laughs> love it. Okay. Number six, describe yourself in three words. Describe myself in three words. I would say present, mm -hmm. connected, and loving. Mm, love all of those. Okay, number seven. Do you have a favorite quote or mantra that you live by? A favorite quote or mantra that I live by? Well, you know, that changes for me all the time. So there's always like a quote or a, or a, or a, an affirmation, a mantra that's guiding my life. And right now that mantra or affirmation is I welcome that into my life that helps me be the best king and the best man that I can possibly be. Mm, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Okay. I'm intrigued on your answer to this one because you'll see why. Number eight, what book should everyone in the world read? And I know you're an author, so. <laughs> Very interesting. What book should everyone in the world read? Mm. Goodness. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm going to just say my favorite book. I don't know that everybody in the world should read it, but it's called The Tao Te Ching. It's, the, mm -hmm. it's a book on Taoism by Lao Tzu. And there's just, um, there's one particular translation that I love. Uh, and it's just sort of my guiding star for just spirituality. Mm, you know, that's a sign for me because I've heard that in conversation a few times now and I pondered the other day I think I should read that and you've said that again so therefore I'm going to now read it yay <laughs> okay and two left so number nine what's your favorite way to move your body favorite way to move my body is to be on a paddleboard on the ocean and just paddle along or surf some waves and just feel the board and the water under my feet. Sounds fun and very calming. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. And the last question, I reached out to you and asked if you would be a guest on the Body Love Binge and you said yes, which I'm so grateful for. Why did you say yes to, to being on the show? Well, because we know each other and I love what you're up to and I love what you're doing and just thought great i i just want to be part of that thank you and it's oh i'm just so excited to go into this so thank you again for being here because time is very precious to each and every one of us and let's start with how did you get involved with the psychology of eating so please like give us a bit of a backstory to how you ended up doing what you do today i started out with an absolute love of nutrition and and that that really started for me honestly maybe age five or so when I was a very sickly child I was asthmatic I had an autoimmune disease and their parents took me from doctor to doctor nothing helped somehow I heard a rumor that fruits and vegetables were good for you <laughs> I remember asking my mother to buy me apples and peas and carrots in a can because I thought that was fruits and vegetables for some reason to my five-year-old mind. My mother bought it, coincidence or not, as I started eating healthier because I was 
in the generation raised on all artificial food. Mm -hmm. So as I started eating healthier, my health started to change. And I noticed that magical connection from a very young age. So by the time I was in my late teens, I was doing nutritional counseling for my friends in college. And I was a nutrition fanatic. And, and then eventually in my early 20s, I had a practice in New York City on Wall Street. And I quickly realized that nutrition knowledge was great, but what would happen was I had a very high priced, highly educated, highly motivated clientele. Mm -hmm. And yet they would come to see me. And after the first session, they would come back two weeks later, you know, they usually want to lose weight. And they would say to me, you know, I know what you told me to do. I know what I was supposed to do. I just couldn't do it. And I couldn't believe it. I just thought you can tell somebody to eat this and eat that. And that's what they would do because that's what I could do. Yeah. And I realized, oh my goodness, I need to understand people's psychology and especially eating psychology. So I thought, okay, let me just, this was back in 1980, maybe. And um, I thought, okay, let me read a book on eating psychology or take a course. And there weren't any. Unexistent. Um, there was no college or university in the U.S. Uh, doing anything, teaching anything about eating psychology other than extreme eating disorders at that mm -hmm. time, which I thought was interesting. But I wasn't. I was more concerned with everybody else, the other ninety-eight percent of people who don't have an eating disorder, but have a relationship with food and body. So I decided at some point that I would eventually write the book that I wanted to read. And someday I would teach the course that I wanted to be in to learn about eating psychology. So that's what got me on the path of self-study and self-inquiry and all driven by my just desire to help people around food and body uh, that grew out of nutrition. And I, I just quickly saw how powerful people's minds were and their emotions were and their story was relative to their relationship with food. And you can't just tell somebody eat this, don't eat that and expect a change. So that's what got me on the road to eating psychology. Wow. What is that? What was the first thing, if you can remember, that you learned when you started to realize that people pay a lot of money, they're dedicated, you say to eat this and don't eat that, and they come back and they're just not doing it. What was the biggest thing that you learned as to maybe perhaps one of the reasons why, even though they say they really want it, why isn't it? Why aren't they doing it? Did you find? Yes, well, Eventually, I answered that question when I started understanding uh, depth psychology, archetypal psychology, and how we are not necessarily one person, but we're more of a crowd of personas or personalities or archetypes. So, you know, you might have the mother in you. You also might have the daughter in you. You're a friend. You're, you might be a teacher. You might be a healer. You can be a warrioress. Uh, there, there's so many themes. There's so many personas that we can invoke in any given moment. And a lot of time, you know, we usually talk about the inner child. That's an archetype. And what I started noticing when people would say, I know what I'm supposed to do. I just don't do it. I started noticing that for those people, 
they have a very strong persona in their regular everyday life. You know, if they're successful in the work world, they're a killer businessman or a killer businesswoman. But when it comes to food and the moment they think about food, the moment they're hungry, the moment they eat, they become a five-year-old or a 12-year-old or a 17-year-old. And by helping people see the persona that takes over unconsciously, for many people when they're about to eat, and especially for the people who say, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I do something different. That's always a clue for me that there's a part of us that's back in time. It's that kid who was turning to food for emotional support. It's the part of us that was rebelling against our parents and rebelling against the world. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And you can't tell me what to do. Um, it's the part of us, the, the child that was hurt or wounded yeah. or neglected or abused, whatever it was. Yeah, that's so interesting. I had a lot of rebelliation. Is that a word, rebelliation? It is now. Well, you just made it up. I like it. <laughs> I had a lot of rebelliation um, throughout my eating history. And most of it, I think, is due, was due to all the that ridiculous diets, aka the cabbage soup diet, those kind of things that I put myself on. So I was just rebelling all the time, knowing that it wasn't good for me, knowing that it didn't feel right, but it was just like a F you, if you like, to all of the restriction that I put myself on. So yeah, that makes complete sense. And Mark, I had this question down to ask you towards the end, but I think it's perfect to ask you now because I absolutely love it when, because I am an avid listener to your podcast. I've listened to like every single episode which is a psychology of eating podcast for anyone that is interested. Um, You talk about the queen archetype a lot and the princess and the queen, and that resonates with me so deeply. Can you just explain what that means and what that is? Yeah. So princess, queen, prince, king, you know, that's, that's Mm -hmm. the, you know, suitable one for, for males. Um, You know, oftentimes people use the word princess as a as an insult or a pejorative term, and it's and it's not meant as an insult here. So talking about queen and princess for me is talking about two different life stages and those stages can be divided up. You know, we can talk about early princess, middle princess, late princess, same with uh, queen. Um, but essentially the difference between a princess and a queen is the difference between youth and adulthood. And in youth, we have certain challenges. We have certain ways that we need to grow. There are certain ways that we see the world. There are certain ways that we haven't wisened up and we're learning. And particularly in the princess phase of life, in the, in the youth phase of a woman, there's oftentimes a reliance on the outside for my value. So look at me, look at me dance, look at what I'm wearing, look at what I'm doing. Do you approve of me? Am I a good girl? And people will say, oh, you're so sweet or oh, you're so pretty or oh, you're so whatever it is. And then we feel good about ourselves. And, and that's, that's in so many ways, the essence of childhood. And what happens is as we get older, that can become in this culture, in the global culture that's being reproduced, getting approval from the outside for me to have my 
center for me to have my sense of self and sense of power constantly getting approval from the outside at some point needs to shift and at some point we step into adulthood i consider the age of 40 to 50 the queen in training <laughs> you're not exactly a princess anymore but you're not quite yet a queen i consider 50 and up queenhood so what often happens is a lot of women hit their 40s or certainly their 50s, and they're still looking to the outside for approval. They're still looking that my body has to be my billboard to advertise my goodness. And if you approve of my body, then you approve of me. If you approve of my weight, you approve of me. And you know who would want to follow a queen who sat on her throne and said, you know, hey, everybody, do you think I need to lose a little weight? Um, does this look good on me? Uh, do, you, do you like me? Uh, you want a queen ruling your queendom who is confident in herself, who believes in herself, mm. who's not stuck anymore in perfectionism. I have to be perfect in order to be loved and accepted. So the queen knows she's imperfect. She knows what her gifts are to give. She knows who she is, what she wants, and she's okay with her body because she's in it and connected to it, as opposed to just wanting to show it off so she can gain approval. So that's, that's talking about princess and queen as it relates to food and body. Yes. And do you think that someone can choose? I would like to think that I am or have done choose to step into the queenhood early than the yes. age. Yes, you know, it's it's oftentimes depending on our family environment, our social environment. Sometimes we're we're thrust a little bit more into responsibility, you know, especially if you're an old if if you're the oldest of a number of siblings, if they're, you know, if you ended up parenting your brothers and sisters, or if your parents died young. Um, so so there's definitely many ways where where we accelerate the growth into queenhood, but I tend to see more of the opposite is that women will stay stuck in princess. Adult women will stay stuck in princess. Adult men will stay stuck in prince stage mm -hmm. and won't make that leap to king or queen. That's what I tend to see more of. Yeah. I mean, I really resonated when I first heard you share it. And then that helped me personally in terms of body image and the way that I see myself to choose to step into queenhood earlier, at least in terms of my mindset and how I perceive myself not needing the outside approval because I get to approve myself. Absolutely, 100%. And that's a practice, honestly, that I, I wish young people would, would start in their teens, you know, even before of constantly getting the message that you're okay as you are. Yeah. It's okay to want, wish to change and you're okay as you are. Mm. Yeah, no change ever comes from shame. Yes. We think it does, don't we? And then we, we abuse ourselves in our head and then we set really like horrible rules with ourselves and it kind of works like a very short time and then we keep going back to where we were and then getting more annoyed at ourselves and wonder what's wrong with us. It's so true. I, I think I've met... It's, I can't even count how many people over the years, students, clients, friends, 
who have tried to especially lose weight or control their diet through self-attack mm -hmm. and self-judgment and looking in the mirror and just a constant barrage of self-insult. And I've never yet heard a single human being say to me, you know, I hated on myself for years as a strategy to lose weight. I was mean to myself. I said the worst things internally to myself. And one day I woke up and I lost the weight and I was happy forever. Uh, yeah. Never heard that. Yeah, never, never heard a either. single success story. Me neither. Self-talk is huge, 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 huge. Okay, so let's dive into the key principles then of your eating psychology. Do you mind sharing that with us? Yes, let me talk about a couple of key principles of, of eating psychology. And, and this is literally, I, I, I don't know that the term eating psychology was used before I started talking about it, you know, back in the, back in the late 80s, mm -hmm. um, even before then. So it's, it's eating psychology, the number one principle is that our relationship with food is a great teacher that whatever your relationship with food and body is, it's here to teach you. It's here to help you learn and grow. So from that place, no matter what your eating challenge is, whether it's binge eating or overeating or emotional eating, whether it's weight or weight loss or weight gain for some people, whatever the eating challenge is, it's not indicative that something's wrong with you and you're broken and you need to be fixed or you need a drug or whatever it whatever the disease model is. Mm -hmm. So our eating challenges are simply here to help us grow. And if we can ask the question, how is my binge eating a great teacher for me? What is it asking of me? Mm. Let me get curious about it. When do I do it? Why do I do it? How often do I do it? When did it start? What's the benefit? What is it giving me? How is it actually helping me? How is it actually a strategy that I'm using to try to balance myself? What might it be connected to? Is it connected to my nutrition? Is it connected to my relationship challenges or my money challenges, my work challenges, my family challenges? Mm -hmm. So when we ask those questions, we take it out of the realm of, oh my God, I'm a binge eater. I have no willpower and I'm a loser and something's wrong with me and I need to self-attack. Yeah. So if we look at our relationship with food as a great teacher, then all of a sudden we can stop attacking and start growing and start asking questions, start being curious about our life. And we're in a different world all of a sudden because it's not that we're broken. You know, there's a point in, in your life when you're young, you don't know how to read yet. You don't know how to tie your shoes yet. Does that mean there's something wrong with you? Are you broken? No, you're learning. You're a young human and you're learning. And we're always learning, no matter how old we are. Yeah. So that, that to me is one of the more important and probably number one principles of eating psychology. And I'm going to say closely, let me, let me share another one closely connected to that, is that every food and body challenge Again, like the ones I mentioned, weight, overeating, binge eating, emotional eating, whatever it is, any disordered way of eating actually has a brilliant reason that's rooted somewhere in biology or psychology or both. Mm. So in other words, you show me a person who binge eats, 
and let me sit down with them for 30 minutes. And I'll give you the brilliant reasons after asking them a bunch of questions. I can tell you and them the brilliant reasons rooted in biology and psychology as to why they are binge eating. So binge eating is not indicative that there's something wrong with you. Binge eating is a way for a human being to try to create balance. So some people honestly binge eat because they're starving themselves yeah. by dieting. Mm -hmm. And if you're if you're starving yourself through low calorie diets, i.e. you're nutritionally imbalanced, the brain is not smart enough to say to you, hey, you, you are starving yourself. You need more nutrition. You need more vitamins. You need more micronutrients. The brain is just going to, at some point, scream at you hungry. And then you're going to ravenously eat. Mm. And then you ravenously eat and you think you have a problem. Yeah. But there's the brilliant reason rooted in biology, i.e. you're starving yourself, and rooted in psychology, oh, you're starving yourself because you want to lose weight so you can be lovable. Yes. So it's actually, if you think of it, it's a smart strategy. Wow. So if people are going to love me if I lose weight, it makes sense to our child's mind. The child in us just wants to be loved and protected. So if I know that if I lose weight and I believe everybody's going to love me when I lose 15 pounds or 50 pounds, then yeah, I'm going to do my best to do that because that's my emotional and psychic survival. You know, some people binge because they feel a lot of stress and they feel a lot of anxiety and they might not know how to handle certain life experiences. So if I'm feeling challenged in a relationship, if I'm afraid as I'm you know, going through puberty, if I'm afraid of dating or afraid of boys, afraid of girls, afraid of sexuality, it's easy to turn to food. Yeah. Because that stress level builds up in us. When you eat enough food, when you binge on food, eventually the body actually relaxes because it says, oh my God, there's a lot of food in here. And in order to digest a lot of food, the body has to be in a relaxation response. Mm. So your body gently relaxes. And there's this sort of reenactment of the binge eating. Binge eating is always done in a stress state. Yeah. We are always in a stress response when we binge eat. Because the energy inside us, the emotions inside of us have taken over. And we don't know how to process that my upset, my anger, my grief, whatever it is. So there's a crescendo of, of anxiety or stress building up. I eat really fast as a way to somehow fill myself, as a, as, as a way that we understand as infants. You understand that you could be crying in a screaming little infant and mama gives you bottle or breast and you instantly relax. So we have a genetic memory called feel bad, eat food, feel better. Yeah. Every human being has that. And it's honestly nothing wrong with it. It's how we're wired. Food does make us feel better. But when we don't have any other strategies to feel better, yeah. i.e., can I self-soothe? Can I talk to myself? Can I talk to a friend? Can I listen to some music? Can I do some deep breathing and connect with myself, connect with my body? When we don't have any other strategies to self-regulate, we'll go to the strategy that we know best. 
For most people, the strategy that they know best, strangely enough, to self-regulate unwanted emotions is eating. Mm. It's easy. There's always food around. And if there's not food around, you can go out downstairs and go buy it. Yeah. And would you say in your professional opinion, because I notice this within my clients, that anyone who has dieted in the past, especially chronically dieted, food is, I think it, the, the statistics, and I'll have to find the, to put it in the show links, the, the study that was done around this, something like 87% of dieters, their number one coping mechanism is food. Yes because of the restriction that they've had previously. So therefore food is like on a pedestal and they turn to that before maybe shopping or hopefully not drugs, but we're humans. We all need to cope yes. somehow. Yes, yes, yes. And, and really it's all about learning other strategies. Yeah. So, you know, many times, you know, a client will come to me and they're emotionally eating and they want to stop emotionally eating. And for many people, not all, you actually can't focus on stopping emotional eating per se. You almost have to let it go and say, okay, let's put it to the side and let's learn other ways or let's inventory other ways. Because oftentimes we do have other ways that we can learn how to regulate ourselves and manage our internal world, our challenging or intense emotions. We do have other ways. We just need to be reminded. We need to have a conversation. You know, some people taking a walk, walking their dog, uh, listening to music, doing some movement, whatever it is, our, our task is not to fight the unwanted habit mm. of emotional eating, but to learn how do, how do I grow into an adult human being who can, who can manage myself? Yeah, whatever you resist persists, right? For sure. The amount of times I tried to quote stop emotional eating by distracting myself, I would probably last, you know, maybe one or two nights. But then because I was focusing on trying to stop the habit, as you've just shared, it caught up with me eventually. And then I'd therefore turn emotional eating into binge eating and then go all out and then the cycle continued but the the moment I was like okay I'm gonna just love myself through binge eating emotional eating and then first of all stop dieting and like nourish my body with what it needs and then explore other ways as well as food then food just became food yes <laughs> yeah exactly exactly we we are conditioned to think that when we have an eating challenge that food itself is the enemy and mm -hmm. food itself is the problem and we're just misidentifying where the action is. Yes, wow. How, how do you define the difference between binge eating and emotional eating? I have my take on this, but I'm really curious in your professional opinion, what's the difference? You, you know, it's a great question. Oftentimes it's the two can be indistinguishable mm -hmm. for me because to me, definitionally, binge eating for many people, for many people, not all, is a form of emotional eating, mm. turning to food to regulate my emotions. Now, I look at binge eating as sort of an industrial strength overeating. Binge eating is generally characterized by a state where 
we check out to a great degree. Mm. We're not present. A part of us leaves and what's left is a ravenous human being who has no control mm. in many ways. And all that's there is hunger. All that's there is a hungry wolf. And we eat enough. And at some point we come back into our bodies and we come back into waking consciousness and oh, that wasn't so good. Mm. Now, emotional eating. So binge eating is a, can be a form of emotional eating. Many people who emotionally eat, you know, it might just be, okay, I finished work and I had dinner and, you know, I'm still anxious or I'm still bored or I didn't really have a great day and I'm full, but, you know, I want to eat and I want to eat to feel even better or I want to eat to counteract some of this anxiety. And it's, and it's not a totally unconscious state. Mm. It's a little more present. Like I'm going to the refrigerator and I'm eating food. You know, some people are very clear. I eat when I'm lonely. I eat when I'm bored. I eat when I'm upset. I eat when I'm angry. And you can be emotionally eating, you know, many times throughout a day. Some people can binge eat many times throughout a day. Yeah. Would you say that hedonic eating, which in my opinion is eating purely for pleasure, would you say that like fits under the bracket of emotional eating? Because I, I quote struggled with this and I thought there was something wrong with me because I got to the point where I wasn't binge eating. I wasn't necessarily, I would say, emotional eating or perhaps it is under that bracket. I was simply eating very consciously, slowly, purely for pleasure. I wasn't hungry. I was happy. What's your take on that, like hedonic eating and eating for pleasure? You know, everything depends on where we are at in our own personal journey. So if you started getting into more pleasurable eating after you did a lot of work on yourself in your own relationship with food and body, yeah. that would be a, a natural evolution as an eater to begin to embrace the beauty and the pleasure of eating. Many people who have a problematic relationship with food have an extremely problematic relationship with pleasure. Yes. Wow. Things are just like imploding in my head right now because that makes complete sense. Because just to reflect what you've said, and thank you for showing that to me, because for over 20 years of my life, through all the eating disorders I experienced, I got to a place where that was, quote, healed. We never healed, right? It's ongoing. But I was in a really good place with that. So therefore, the eating for pleasure was it was kind of like, wow, I can eat without feeling guilty. So therefore, I'm kind of almost like making up in a conscious, slow way, making up for all the times I've wanted to eat and have the pleasure. And I just couldn't because I had so much shame around it. Uh, a thousand percent and you're teaching your body here's what it's like to experience pleasure mm. you're, you're literally here we we are here to experience both pleasure and pain all creatures on planet earth are wired to seek pleasure and avoid pain mm. every mammal every every reptile every insect every single-celled organism is wired to seek pleasure and avoid pain 
That's, that's the most primitive programming in any nervous system. Pleasure means that you're surviving. Pleasure means that life is okay. Pleasure means food is pleasurable mm -hmm. um, for seems like most creatures, if not all. Um, reproduction, at least for humans, is technically pleasurable. So that which sustains and recreates life is inherently pleasurable because then you'll do it. You need to eat food to live. So the creator made it so food is pleasurable. You need to reproduce and have kids if we want to, as a human race, continue the species. So the wisdom of the universe made that experience pleasurable. And what happens is if I make food the enemy because food makes me fat or I'm emotionally eating and I'm binge eating, so food must be the enemy. What I'm really doing is I'm cutting off pleasure because food is inherently pleasurable. Mm. And what happens, oh my God, I just ate something and it feels good. Oh my God, if it feels good, I'm gonna want more of it. And if I want more of the thing that feels good, then I have to fight it, it's the enemy. So we give ourselves the message that pleasure is the enemy. So oftentimes people who are denying themselves pleasure with food are often denying other pleasures in life or the pleasure of life. Yeah. So. As we recover, we need to learn how to let pleasure in, in all its forms. Yes, I can resonate so much in terms of not just pleasure from food, but in terms of life. When life is going good, it was almost like, mm, I'm a bit suspicious that I'm like really happy in life right now. Something must be going to happen soon that's going to cause me to, I don't know, have drama or upset and that's not the case. So they're always creating that unconsciously in my life for a few years until my new affirmation was life gets to be this good. I am worthy of pleasure. I can receive. That's so perfect. That's so beautiful. And, and by, by inventing and repeating and, and owning those affirmations, it's literally rescripting how we think because the old you was thinking Pain is the norm. Yes. Pleasure will make things worse. Mm -hmm. Because if you indulge in the pleasure of food, you're going to be eating more food, which means you, you, would, you would technically gain more weight, according to what the brain is thinking. So I better not do pleasure because pleasure is going to give me a problem. Pleasure is bad, is the unconscious me message. So, And when you give the mind an unconscious message, if you say, you know, pleasure from food is bad, Generally speaking, the mind's not going to hear pleasure from food is bad. The mind's going to hear pleasure is bad, mm. period. Anything that I do that's pleasurable is going to take me down a bad road. So by creating a positive affirmation, you're, we are just rewiring. We're reinventing our internal world. And we build up, you're building up your capacity <laughs> to experience pleasure. Yeah. And that felt very uncomfortable, but your nervous system has to feel safe to experience pleasure, which sounds silly, doesn't it? But if your comfort zone has been abuse or pain in some way or difficulty or struggle, it feels very uncomfortable, even though it also feels incredible to experience the pleasure. It doesn't feel right unconsciously. So yeah, I love how the conversation's gone here. How would you be able to, if say if you had a client who was struggling with pleasure 
and was perhaps struggling with binge eating and emotional eating, what's like one of the first, the first one or two things that you recommend that they do in terms of the way they eat or the way they talk to themselves to help them come back to balance? Firstly, I would I would explain to them, you know, perhaps in more detail than I than I went into here, mm -hmm. explain to them really the pleasure and pain duality and the pleasure or and pain polarity, really, and how we're built for both. Mm -hmm. How we are designed to we experience pain, you know. You you burn your hand on the stove, that's painful. Don't put your hand there. Avoid that. So that pain teaches us how to be safe. Pain is teaching us when there's a problem. Pain is letting us know when there's an issue. Pleasure is generally letting us know, hey, something good is happening. And you could take this in. Now, there are certain pleasures that are actually, um, can be harmful to us. Mm -hmm. You know, you can say, well, gosh, drinking alcohol every day gives me so much pleasure. But pleasure has to be guided by wisdom. Yes, yes. And a feeling of, I guess, I guess if some, I don't actually drink alcohol, so I haven't got experience with this, but I guess if someone was to really be in tune with their intuition and they ask themselves, does it feel right to be drinking alcohol every day? I'm, I'm pretty sure if they were honest, the answer would be no. Would you agree? Yes. And there are, there are certain people who that might be what they do. I know people who drink every day. I, I couldn't drink as much as they do. Um, some people might label them as a functional alcoholic. They don't label themselves that way. They mm -hmm. label themselves as I'm a drinker and I enjoy it. Mm -hmm. And we, we, we just all have a different relationship with our body. I think at the end of the day, but I will, I will often ask a client who's challenged around pleasure to write a pleasure inventory write a long list of everything you can think of in your life, persons, places, things, thoughts, feelings, beliefs, foods, experiences, anything that gives you pleasure. Mm -hmm. Music, movement, certain friends, certain place that you go to, uh, playing with your pet, whatever it is, certain TV shows, certain videos, what gives you pleasure, make a long list. And look at that list and see what on that list can I do every day? Mm. What on that list have I forgotten to do yeah. and have let go of that gives me a simple pleasure? What can I do on that list once a week or once a month? And ask the question of, you know, I'll, I'll ask my client to ask themselves the question, do I wish to invite more pleasure into my life? Yeah, who wouldn't? Well, you'd be surprised because oftentimes we might feel that we don't deserve it. Yeah. I think that's what gets in the way. Well, I will deserve pleasure when I have the perfect body. Mm. Yep. I will deserve pleasure when I'm eating perfectly and I eat exactly what I say I want to eat and I don't eat the bad foods. Then I deserve pleasure. So we create these impossible barriers to pleasure or we make pleasure conditional. Well, I'm 40 pounds overweight. How can I experience pleasure? I hate this body. 
Yeah, well, if you hate this body, you're not going to be experiencing a lot of pleasure. Mm. So we often have the false belief that pleasure is dependent upon me looking a certain way or weighing a certain amount. And it's simply not true. Anybody can experience pleasure in any moment. Yeah, because we are innately worthy just because we're alive. Exactly. Yes. Like God, I mean, God makes no mistakes. So you're exactly as you're supposed to be. And even if, even if we're not, if you want to build more muscle, you have to do things that help you build more muscle. If you want to have more endurance, you have to do things that give you more endurance. If you want to be a better tennis player, you have to do things that make you a better tennis player. But it all involves being in your body, occupying your body. What a lot of people do is, well, because I don't have the body that I want right now, I'm going to live in my head. Mm, yes. I'm going to live up here. And my body is kind of a life support system for my head. And I'm going to just think about my body and think about how good life will be when I have a different body. Which doesn't come. <laughs> no, it doesn't. So we start to have a good experience of being in a body when we call time out and say, okay, I can have a good experience in any version of my body. Mm. And feeling good in the body starts today. It doesn't start in the future. Yeah, that, that's so key. And I would love to hear your take on, have you heard the take on weight set point theory before? Yes. What's your, your opinion of that? I think that there's a certain usefulness, but I don't get caught up in any absolutes when it comes to set point theory. Mm -hmm. So essentially, yes, there are our bodies in an, in an ideal universe. I don't want to say even an ideal universe. You take a healthy population and a person will fluctuate within a certain small range. Yeah of weight throughout the year. It's about five pounds on average, where, you know, just a person who's just in a good flow and is reasonably good health and a reasonably good relationship with food, there's a small fluctuation. So the body has a natural weight. Mm -hmm. At any given phase in life, the body has its natural state at that, at that particular phase in life. And, you know, you had a certain set point when you were 10 years old, that lasted until a new set point hit. And maybe that new set point came at puberty. And then you had a new set point that came as you grew taller and as you grew out more. So set point changes naturally. And then at some point, set point might be in influenced by, if you're a woman, have you been pregnant? Mm -hmm. What's going on with your pregnancy now? Are you breastfeeding? Um, so people's bodies will find a weight that is rightful for it or good for it or for some reason that's where the body wants to be mm -hmm. you know what often happens is people say i want to lose 50 pounds and they do all these things and they lose 35 pounds and the body stops right at that weight that person can exercise their brains out from there they could go go on a 500 calorie diet and their body's not going to budge yeah why can't i lose more weight I want to lose 15 pounds more. And what we're basically doing is we're bullying the body. Mm 
we're bullying life and we're not listening to the body. So my body just plateaued. When you're on a plateau, you do as you do, which is you hang on the plateau and you look around and you explore and you get curious and see what that plateau is like and you live there. And you spend time there because that's what the body's telling you to do anyway. Yes. The body's saying, here's your place. Yeah. So remember, we talked about the first principle of eating psychology is our, our relationship with food and body is a great teacher. Mm -hmm. Well, my head said, I want to lose 50, 55 old pounds. My body said, well, we're just losing 35. Mm -hmm. You can fight that. You can be a brat about it. I'm not getting what I want. But yeah, you're not. Because <laughs> the body doesn't care about a six pack. It cares about your healthiest, vibrant, like the way it sits for you in that your life area, how much you're moving, how much nutrients you're eating. It has that healthy balance of what feels right for the body, regardless of whether you want to have abs or not. <laughs> doesn't exactly. Care exactly. And, and, and the body is not concerned with its with its look or its attractiveness yes. to whoever the body is 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 concerned with its balance and its survival and i think in in my worldview the body takes its marching orders from the soul yeah i agree so you know i, I i've met people who were eating the healthiest diet in the world had the most amazing lifestyle and they got sick they got cancer mm. and that catalyzes a whole other different kind of journey and you can't blame any of that cancer on their food or their diet or their lifestyle because wow everything was great but their body is taking them through some very powerful lessons mm. that impacts their family their friends their loved ones so you know that's an extreme example but the body is a great teacher and it teaches us in some really wonderful and sweet ways. And it also teaches us through its challenges and its ailments and its illnesses. Yeah. I feel like sharing to our beautiful listeners a journal prompt such as, what is my body trying to tell me? Or what is my body trying to communicate with me? And then see what, see what comes through that. I guess they could learn a lot about themselves by doing that. I think so. I really do. Because the body's always talking to us. Yeah. And it has a different language than we do. It has a different agenda than we do. Mm. And we are often forcing our agenda onto the body. Yeah. And the body knows best, I believe, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Mark. So we're coming on to time. So I have, well, I have two last questions for you. One is quite quick at the end. However, I know that you, you're developing other fields and you're an author of numerous books. How can people come into your world? What else have you got your fingers in your pies with doing and created? How can people know more about you? And do you work with clients one-to-one? -one? I really don't work with clients anymore I'll, I'll see one or two at a time I'm mostly teaching and running the institute for the psychology of eating and just developing new programs so you know people can learn about us by going to our website psychologyofeating.com 
they can visit us on Facebook, Institute for the Psychology of Eating. We saw a ton of free content there, ton of free content on YouTube. I'm doing Facebook Lives. We're always doing webinars. There, there's just so much free material in our universe to get to know. Yeah, there is. And I, I can vouch for that. That's I found you on Facebook very randomly years ago and you know thank you universe for showing you to me and then I was like oh that looks interesting and then that's when I found the podcast and then the rest was history <laughs> hey. I feel like I know you very well <laughs> and thank the last you. question I have for you Mark is what three pieces of advice would you give the listeners if they're struggling with you know the usual what that you help people with they're maybe binge eating emotional eating they don't like the reflection in the mirror can't receive pleasure, what three things would you say to them? Three things I would say is number one, embark on a journey of self-love and self-acceptance. Mm. It doesn't come easy, but it's a journey. And unless we choose to be on that journey or that path of self-acceptance and self-love, even though it's hard, unless we choose it, then it doesn't quite happen. We stay in the old pattern of self-attack. So it's consciously choosing to evolve as a human being. It's choosing to consciously grow as a human being. Because when we're young, growth just seems to happen. <laughs> learning seems to happen. Yeah, you put out efforts as a kid, but learning just is, comes very naturally when we're very young. When we start to reach adulthood, it, it shifts a little bit. And we have to take responsibility. So that's one piece I would say, embark on a journey of self-love and self-acceptance. Um, next thing I would say is to slow down. Um, so many people feel like I need to get rid of my eating challenge yesterday. I need to lose the weight yesterday. I need to be perfect like today. And it can't happen fast enough. And when we try to move too fast in our growth and our healing, and our evolution, we are living in a stress response. Mm. I gotta do this now, I gotta do this yesterday. How come this didn't happen? I'm in a stress response. And when you're in a stress response, you are not in your higher cortical thinking. You're not in your prefrontal cortex. You're not in the place in your brain that can see the big picture. You're mm. not in the place of your brain that channels wisdom. You're in the place in your brain that's just trying to survive. Yeah. And doesn't always make the wisest decisions because you're making decisions based on survival and you're looking for quick fix methods. So I think a lot of times we need to slow down. And the last thing I would say is to embark on a journey of learning how to best regulate mind and emotions. Mm -hmm. Because oftentimes we are being tortured by our own mind and we are being overpowered by our own emotions. We just don't know how to handle what's happening inside me. Yeah. And that's understandable because it's not easy to handle our mind. It's not easy to handle our emotions because that's all connected to the rest of the world and the world's not an easy place. Yeah. So as we notice that mind and emotions need to be taught. We yeah. need to teach ourselves, how do I best think? How do I best deal with my, all my feelings 
in ways other than food, our journey becomes much more interesting. Mm -hmm. And we actually start to see progress and we start to see headway. And we realize that it's not just about patchwork. It's not just about fixing problems. It's about growing as a human being and learning how to be our best self. Yeah, wow. Thank you so much for your generous you know, your generous tips and your wisdom, because there's, you've just given so much and I really appreciate your time immensely. It's been an absolute pleasure. The hour has flew by. It has. Yes. Yeah. Victoria, thanks so much. Thanks for the great conversation. And I'm so thrilled about your podcast and thrilled about what you're doing and, and such a, such a, such a beautiful and important message that you're delivering. So thank you. Thank you. And right back at you, Mark, what you do is nothing more than incredible. So I will link everything below, of course. Thank you again, listeners. I will see you next week and lots of love to you, Mark, and to the listeners. Bye-bye. I hope this episode was everything you needed to hear today and more. If you love this podcast, then please screenshot this episode and share it to your Instagram or Facebook stories and tag me at Victoria Kleinsman so I can share you with my audience and we can get my podcast out to more women that need it. Also, I'd be super duper grateful if you could rate and review this podcast as it really does help others to find it. Thank you so, so much in advance and I'll see you on the next one.